Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we wrap up our three-week Connect series on Jonah. In week one, we looked at chapter one, and we watched as Jonah ran away from God into utter ruin. Last week, in week two, we looked at Jonah chapter two as Jonah went to Sheol and back, and God rescued him and gave him rebirth. These first two chapters, in many ways, parallel chapters three and four, which we're looking at today, setting the scene for the real story that is to come. So today we pick up where we left off with the last verse of chapter two, which says, And Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. By the way, after some intensive Bible study, I have verified that this is, in fact, the only mention of fish vomit in the Holy Scriptures, though perhaps that is still one too many. But that's not really the point, of course. The point is that Jonah gets a hard reset here. Though he's the only prophet in the Bible who has to be given his assignment a second time, God graciously doesn't mention his prior failure. Just like how when he forgives our sins, it's like they never happened. And he sends us out just as before to live our lives faithfully for him. So whereas before Jonah had slowly descended into darkness, this time Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, a city great in size and even greater in sin. This anti-prophet has, at least for now, chosen to be a faithful prophet, to speak God's word to the Ninevites. Uh, Those are specifically uh, five words in Hebrew. In our English translation, it's eight. But here's Jonah's sermon in its entirety as it's recorded for us. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no evidence at all that Jonah shares any gospel or, or any hope with them at all. Just the stern law of, of God that declares punishment for sin. Yet, like we talked about last week, God loves us not only with his gospel, but also with his law. And here, he uses this harsh word to love the people of Nineveh. And in a story just riddled throughout with shocking moments, a big one comes right here in chapter 3, when Nineveh, this great and awful city, repents. And it is all the more shocking because Jonah's five-word sermon doesn't mention their sin. It doesn't mention what they should do about it. It doesn't even mention God. But short as it may be, Jonah's sermon has a powerful effect. And as a result, Jonah's words here actually come true. Now, here's what I mean by that. Our translation says that that Nineveh will be overthrown, uh, but maybe an even better word uh, than what we use in our English translation would be something a little more ambiguous, um, like overturned. This is really what, what Jonah's kind of saying, and that's exactly what happened. Jonah was anticipating that Nineveh would be overturned in the sense of destruction, but instead, Nineveh is overturned by a complete transformation of the heart, a transformation of of repentance and faith. All of the people covered themselves in sackcloth, even the king who decrees that, that everybody in the city and even the animals are not to eat or drink anything while they cry out to God. Nineveh is overturned, even the animals. 
You know, people even today like to, uh, to use their animals as a, a visible sign of, of the state of their hearts, whether they're dressing them in their favorite football team's uniform or uh, really tacky Christmas sweaters. Well, the Ninevites dress their animals in the garments of repentance. So total was their turning away from their sin that it could be seen in every aspect of their lives, even their livestock. And with all of this, uh, the king asks this kind of rhetorical question. Who knows? He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? Christians throughout the centuries have found it incredible that the Ninevites repented even though Jonah had given them no reassurance that their repentance would mean anything or or accomplish anything. John Chrysostom in the 4th century, for example, says this, Let us imitate the spiritual wisdom of the barbarians. They repented even on uncertain grounds. They knew not the end of the event, and yet they do not neglect repentance. They are unacquainted with God's method of showing mercy, and yet they change upon the strength of uncertainties. Who knows? Nineveh didn't, but we do. Unlike Nineveh, we do have the certainty of knowing that our repentance results in God's mercy, in forgiveness, in God holding back punishment from us. You know this because Jesus has lived and died and lives again for you. You know for certain that God will turn from his fierce anger and you will not perish. So knowing that, let me ask you, what in your life needs overturning? God wants to turn your world upside down in the best possible way, just like he did for the Ninevites, and that blessed shakeup comes about through repentance. Biblically speaking, repentance means making a 180-degree turn, deciding that that you are sinful, acknowledging that before God fully and leaving it behind entirely. For Nineveh, repentance meant clothing themselves in sackcloth, sitting in ashes, and turning away from violence. What should it look like in your life? Maybe it should look like abandoning a sinful lifestyle that all of your friends say is okay, but God doesn't. Maybe it looks like undergoing a complete re-examination and transformation of, of what you watch on TV or, or listen to on, on iTunes or Spotify. Or maybe by God's power, repentance in your life means giving up that sinful habit that's enslaved you for years. Repentance means feeling sorrow over how your life has failed to line up with God's desires for you. Confessing that and turning away from it and receiving God's true and certain forgiveness. Because when we repent, God relents. And that's what he did for Nineveh. Will you read this with me? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, this particular twist in Jonah's story is perhaps not as surprising to us as most of the others, because we know God's merciful and gracious character, his loving heart. And yet even here, there's more than meets the eye. 
We just talked about how Nineveh repented of their sin, and they certainly did. Uh, but it's interesting, the, the Hebrew word nakam, which means to repent, um, to change your mind, and, and to turn away from your previously determined course of action, that word does not appear in Jonah in relation to the Ninevites. But it does with God. Yes, God relents, but the way that the Hebrew text actually describes it is by saying that God repents. But is that even possible? Is it possible that, that the eternal and unchanging God would change his mind? Is it possible that the perfect judge of all the universe would reverse his verdict? Yes. In fact, this isn't the only place in the Old Testament where, where we're told that God repents. We're told in Genesis 6 that, that God repented of having made humanity after seeing the magnitude of their sin. We're told in, in Exodus at Mount Sinai when God is determined to wipe Israel off the face of the earth after their idolatry with the golden calf, that God repents of the disaster he was planning to bring upon them after Moses intercedes for the people. This doesn't mean that we have a, a fickle unpredictable or frighteningly arbitrary God, the rest of Scripture makes it very clear that that's not the case. What it means is that we have a God who listens to our prayers and to our cries for repentance. God is not this machine that, that must react in predetermined ways based on the inputs that we give Him. He, he is a real, personal, loving, and caring God who can be persuaded to show mercy he did with the Ninevites, and he does with us. Have you seen God's amazing mercy toward you? You know, every time that, that we gather together at Connect to worship God, we begin with uh, words of confession and forgiveness. And, and I hope you understand what's happening in those moments. We're not simply checking off a box. We're, we're not saying a prayer because we know that, that we kind of have to. And God is not just forgiving our sins because he has no other choice because we use the, the proper passcode or something like that. No, what is happening there is God is, is listening to us as we repent of our sins. God is hearing our cry for mercy and he's graciously granting us his forgiveness through the mouth of your pastor. Because Christ Jesus made satisfaction for your sin God has repented and relented of the disaster that he said he was going to bring upon all who have sinned and fallen short of his glory. We do not have to ask ever, who knows? Because we see God's mercy every day in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the main things that the book of Jonah wants us to know. Now, if you were to go out today and, and ask the average person that you meet on the street, uh, what is the book of Jonah about? Uh, they'd probably tell you it's, it's about this guy who gets swallowed by a, a whale or a, a fish. I can't remember which of those it is. Uh, yet in the whole book, the fish is mentioned a total of three times. Jonah himself is only mentioned by name 16 times. And yet God or Yahweh is mentioned 39 this is a story about God, particularly about God's amazing, unbelievable grace towards even the worst of sinners. And so that's what we've encountered here by the end of chapter 3. Here we have this, this comfortable conclusion, this great Hollywood-type ending. 
There's no indication that the story is going to continue on or, or that it even needs to. So you're tempted to say, and everyone lived happily ever after. But someone didn't. Jonah didn't. And this, not Nineveh's repentance, this is the central conflict of the whole narrative. Nineveh repents, God relents, and Jonah resents. Nineveh has been overturned in repentance, and God has consequently overturned his verdict of judgment. In this story, both Nineveh and God, both shockingly, change. Jonah does not. Jonah will not. Ironically, Yahweh has turned his anger away, and as a result, Jonah becomes angry. Jonah can't stomach God's grace and mercy any more than the fish could stomach him. He goes from being resent to resenting God's mercy. Jonah decides to, to counter Yahweh's word with his own, to, to take it upon it to take it upon himself to become the, the religious advisor for the Almighty God. The problem is Jonah's theological advice to God contradicts what God has already explicitly said and done. Here, finally, at the very end of the book, we're, we're actually told the real reason that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. It had nothing to do with fear. It had nothing to do with his comfortable position in King Jeroboam's court like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It had everything to do with Jonah's resentment that God would forgive his worst enemies. In all of this, Jonah doesn't seem to remember that, that God had rescued disobedient, rebellious Jonah. He's unwilling to extend to others the same gospel that had saved his life, even to the point where he's willing to throw that life away again. And even then, as, as one commentator writes, the Lord of history, who rules the wind and the sea and the mighty power of Sheol, who saved a wicked metropolis, here stoops down to hold a conversation with a pouting child. God listens and gently corrects his prophet. And he does the same for us. Is there any resentment of which you need to rid yourself today? We all have those people uh, that we resent. You know, uh, like people who don't use their turn signals while they're driving on the road. People who uh, don't put their shopping carts in the conveniently located corral like three spaces away from where they parked. You know, people who we can categorize as, as people who, right? People who whatever. On an even more serious note, how about people who have inflicted deep wounds on us? around our family, people who have attacked us without provocation, people who've made commitments to us and then left us in the lurch. The lesson Jonah's book is meant to teach us is that all of these people are people who are loved by God, people who God desires to be recipients of his unrelenting grace. Now, this is the same God who chose David an adulterer and a murderer, a man of blood, to be king over his chosen nation. This is the God who selected Paul, a violent persecutor of the church, 
to be his voice to the peoples of the world. As Jesus himself hung dying on the cross, he promised paradise to a thief and a murderer, to a man whose victims and their families had suffered in unimaginable ways from his crimes. But don't forget that that a few hours earlier, Jesus had also spoken a prayer on behalf of those who were nailing him to the cross, the Roman soldiers and, and us. Father, forgive them for they... They know not what they do. God did not resent us, but he sent this Jesus to restore us. The book of Jonah um, ends with this this literary device, uh, much like the the parable parable of the prodigal son, uh, this literary device known as the the rhetoric of entrapment, where a question is asked uh, to, to challenge to convict. And so God asks Jonah this question to, to convict him, to confront his sinful heart. And, and it's a question meant for us as well. He says to Jonah, Jonah, you pitied this plant that I gave you that hasn't even been here for a day. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? It's hundreds of thousands of human souls. Jonah had sat down to see what would become of the city, you know, kind of anticipating and, and wishing upon it fire and brimstone and death and destruction. Jonah's problem, which is so often ours as well, is that he set his eyes on others instead of on his own heart that was in such desperate need of rehabilitation, instead of fixing his eyes on God who so eagerly desired to make that heart whole. In the end, God's word and God's grace prevail over both Nineveh's and Jonah's sinful ways, perhaps most surprising and most wonderful of ours, most wonderful of all, ours too. Thanks be to God for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the peace of God which transcends our understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Next week, uh, in celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, our pastoral team is going to be uh, starting a sermon series called Sola, uh, which is going to be looking at the five key truths of our faith that the Reformation uh, brought back to the church. Also happening next week is a very, very important event that I strongly urge everyone here to take part in. Um, if you take your service folder out, you'll see that you have an insert, not the one that you just took copious notes on during the sermon, but the other one. Um, The insert here, you'll see kind of a picture of um, a potential building on the front. And on the back, uh, we have four potential building projects uh, that are under discussion. And so um, next week, we're going to have a a Q&A, just a, a question and answer session, where we're going to ask you for your input to help prioritize these four building projects and and talk about how it might make sense to move forward. Um, One of the projects, as you see, is an 800-seat auditorium for Connect Worship, something that will greatly impact anybody who ever attends this service. Um, We realize that noon, right after this service, is a really tough time of day, and so in order to make it possible for everybody to be here, Um, We've arranged for some volunteers that are going to actually take your kids to the dining hall just around the corner. Uh, We'll be giving them a a pizza lunch, and they're going to be able to watch a movie uh, while we're in here. 
And uh, even though we're going to stay and answer questions for however long uh, anybody wants, uh, the official session is going to end in, in less than an hour. So you can, can get your kids and kind of go on with your day. Uh, just kind of one last thing I want to say about this. There are, are many, many people who have put in just countless hours and, and tons and tons of effort uh, to get us to this point. And many of them don't attend Connect themselves, uh, but they see the need for this facility. Um, I, I just can't stress how important it is uh, that this community of worshipers at this service, every single one of you, uh, takes part in this process, takes ownership of, of what's happening um, financially in big or small ways as, as the opportunity comes, but especially by coming to this question and answer session, uh, by coming to the voters meeting in October that you'll be hearing a little bit more about and, and in whatever ways that you can over the coming months. This is a really exciting time for our church, and this is your opportunity to have an impact on St. Lawrence and its ministry for, for generations to come. So thanks in advance uh, for the way that you'll be a part of that.